Okay, everyone, we're going to go ahead and get started. I know some people are still uh, making their way in, but that's okay. So I'm just curious, raise your hand if you're just now joining us for the morning, if you were not here for the previous session. So we have a, a couple new folks. Well, thank you all for being here. Welcome to the Rothko Chapel. Just a couple things to be mindful of. Um, we are documenting this entire experience uh, by photography, video, and audio. So we ask that you silence your cell phones uh, and refrain from photography, but know that there will be lots of documentation and it's all going to be available on our website and Vimeo and all different types of locations and Facebook afterwards. So we are now moving into our second session of the morning, exploring the impact of climate change on mind, body, and spirit. The format for this morning is that we're going to begin with a short moment of reflection and meditation. Then each of the panelists will give short remarks. We'll move into a discussion, and then there'll be some time at the end for engagement with the audience and Q&A. During that time, we have two volunteers stationed in the back. Each of them will have a microphone and will be making their way around. So during that time, we ask that you raise your hand. Please wait until the mic comes to you before you begin talking, because we are going to be, as you know, I already said this, audio recording this. So this way, we capture everyone's words. So I'd like to begin by introducing our moderator for this session, uh, and then he will introduce you to each of the panelists. Our moderator is Alejandro Chaul. Dr. Chaul is the founding director of the Jung Center's Mind, Body, Spirit Institute um, at the Jung Center. He holds a, a doctoral degree in religious studies from Rice University. He's a faculty member in the Integrative Medicine Program at MD Anderson Cancer Center, where since 1999, he's used mind, body, and spirit techniques to facilitate healing in cancer, cancer patients and their families to reduce stress and promote work-life balance among support staff. And there's more information about him in your program. I think now we'll begin. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, everyone, uh, for being here. Um, for me, this is a place like home. Um, really, it's an incredible sacred space in Houston, uh, one that I've um, come started coming when I got here 22 years ago, uh, thanks to my brother-in-law, uh, and, uh, and I kept on coming. Um, and I love this space, and I love the people here. So thank you, Ashley, thank you, David, thank you, Kelly, and all the people, Allison, Hannah, Francis, everyone who collaborates. I mean, really, it's part of the people that also makes us feel at home. And I feel that this metaphor of home is so important as we are talking about climate change, the big home, right? And so um, one of the things that I like to hear in this panel is how is the big home relate to the maybe small home of our own, of our mind, body, and spirit? So, I'll guide a short meditation, uh, so also as a transition from coming from an interfaith panel um, to this mind-body-spirit panel. And um, as Ashley said, if you can put your cell phones in, uh, I call it meditation mode. <laughs> I like one of the speakers that he said about all the iPhones and I, how there's so much I. And if we close them, there's more we. So, Close them, 
for a little bit and let's enjoy the presence of each other. So let's take a moment as we listen to the sound of the bell go into silence. Letting that silence be an invitation to bring our mind inwards. Connect to our breath. Into our body. And notice that you can breathe through your nose or through your mouth and see if you can breathe more through your nose. So let your mind guide your breath to breathe in and out through your nose. And notice as you're breathing if you can guide your breath, not just to your lungs, but with that feeling of bringing it lower towards your abdomen. Maybe even place one hand or both hands right in front of your belly button as you breathe in and let that air nurture you, fill you, and almost inflate your belly like a balloon as you receive that air. And then as you breathe out, back through your nose. Breathe in, filling the balloon. Breathe out, back through your nose. As you do it at your own rhythm. And if your mind gets distracted, you can bring it back to your breath, either at the place in your nose as you breathe in and out, at the place in your abdomen as it inflates and contracts. Which also supports as we breathe lower into our body. Notice how you're sitting, how you're touching the floor and how we're supported by Mother Earth. So every breath is an opportunity to feel the support of Mother Earth. Feeling her grounding and love unconditional love. And how we keep on breathing in this way, notice the flow of your breath from your nose to your abdomen and back through your nose to facilitate the flow of that inner wind of your breath. Allow your back to straighten, your spine to lengthen. Maybe even stretch your arms if that is comfortable, but still breathe into your abdomen and back through your nose. 
letting go tensions in the exhalation, bringing in more free breath, fresh breath, wonderful breath into you. As you stretch, let tensions of your body relax, and then slowly allow your arms to come down and rest comfortably on your lap, maybe with your elbows out so you can open your chest and open your heart. Inviting us to come down from the usual busyness address of our mind and our brain to our open address of our mind in our heart, our home, our spiritual home. As the eyes are closed, not too tight, or if you prefer them open, looking to the tip of your nose and into the ground, keep on breathing. Nurturing your body, giving your intellectual mind a rest and being more in your heart mind. Connecting to your spirit. To that place where you can wake up. Allowing this awareness to be like the sun, fully present in the sky, illuminating without bias, without judgment to criticism, just being present. In that way, feeling its warmth nurturing every cell of your body nurturing you emotionally, mentally, and spiritually with your warmth, qualities of loving kindness, of compassion, of joy, of peace of mind. That can extend from your home address and your heart center to everyone around you right and left, front and back. That in this beautiful home of the Rothko Chapel, we're all connected with this deep intention to bring more awareness and positive change for this future. As this Rothko Chapel, as a center, we can expand from our hearts to the whole of Houston. To the whole of Harris County. To the whole of Texas. To the whole of the United States. breathing from our heart center 
to the whole of the Americas. To the whole world. And to the whole universe. And it starts right here. In our mind heart. Every breath an opportunity to bring change. To feel interconnected with all sentient beings without exception. And to greet them with a heart smile. And maintaining that sense of connectedness. Notice how every breath is an opportunity to maintain connectedness. Connectedness of body, mind, and spirit. And slowly, you can relax your body, maybe massage any part of the body that needs it. Maybe you want to massage the area of your face and eyes and head and slowly open and close your eyes. And as you integrate with the external world, looking around to all these beautiful people, don't disconnect to yourself. So welcome again, now from uh, this place. As I said, I'm really delighted uh, to be here again and know that some of the presenters are new to the Rothko Chapel. That's exciting, welcome. So, we have a, a wonderful panel, and you probably read their bios here. So I'm just going to say something very briefly for each one. And before I do that, kind of a little bit of the framework. It is kind of the mind, body, spirit. And so each of our panelists would address one of those three aspects. But as we know, they're very intertwined. And in a way, kind of the mind-body-spirit of our existence is a microcosm for the bigger cosm of the world, of the universe. And so in a way, how is our mind and our actions of the mind, our body and actions of the body and spirit and actions of the spirit get impacted by what happens in the external world, and how do we impact that, both positively and negatively. So, there's different ways of addressing that, from action of actually doing that and maybe reducing another way of karma, the carbon dioxide, or the carbon imprint that we live in the world, but also can we, for example, be in our sacred space, whether it's praying, connecting, and is that also affecting positively? So, we have three wonderful speakers. So for the mind, we have uh, Christy Manning, who's a, 
who's uh, Dr. Christy Manning, who's an assistant professor in environmental studies and psychology at McAllister College. She's coming from Minnesota. And um, so welcome uh, to Houston. We have, for the body, we have Umair Shah, who's the executive director and local health authority for Harris County Public Health Department. So this is part of your place, so welcome. And uh, Teocassin Ghosthorse, founder, host, and executive producer of First Voices Indigenous Radio and member of the Cheyenne River Lakota of South Dakota. So welcome to Houston. I hear that you've had some little incidents before coming, so coming. So I encourage you to read all their bios, and I just want to say one of them has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. I rarely get to sit with someone like that. So thank you. And I'm not going to tell you whom, so you can read them in their <laughs> So with that, let me go first to Christy and uh, your words. Thank you. Thank you. So hello, everybody. My name is Christy Manning, and I, am, I teach in an interdisciplinary environmental studies department in St. Paul, Minnesota. But I'm actually a psychologist, cognitive and biological, or research psychologist by background and training. And for the last 12 years, climate change has been the focus of my research and teaching. And when I was asked to speak a little bit about the impacts of climate change on the mind, I, I have probably too many things to say, but I, I boiled it down to four or five points that I want to share with you. And I, I want to start with what, where Alejandro just left off, and that is the idea that we, our, our mind impa is impacted by climate change, yes, but we, our thinking also impacts the climate impacts the world around us. So we live in this reciprocal relationship, um, mentally, physically, spiritually, with the environment around us. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll start with um, some sort of cognitive science, and that is the idea of the evolutionary mismatch hypothesis. So what scientists say is that our, we human beings have invented ourselves an environment that doesn't match the senses that we evolved slowly over time as a species, right? So we have, um, we, as somebody pointed out this morning, we use our devices as this sort of insulation between ourselves and the world early humans didn't have those devices. We, we don't really naturally interact with them. They uh, prevent us from getting some of the feedback that we perhaps need to live appropriately with our environment. Our senses are attuned to events that are striking, that are visible, that are loud, that we can see, taste, smell. And, and a problem with climate change and the mind is that its signals are diffuse. 
they are ch the change is occurring slowly over time. The signal of climate change is lost in the noise of seasonal weather variations. So it's not giving us the sensory signal, you've got to do something about this, this is dangerous, right? Um, and so that's the evolutionary mismatch hypothesis, where climate change is, is a so-called wicked problem that isn't setting off our alarm bells. We can certainly learn to understand climate change. We can connect the dots between the strange weather, between Hurricane Harvey and the impacts we are having on our climate. But that's a cognitive process. It stays a mental event as opposed to an emotional, physical one that prompts us for, for action. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing about climate change and the mind and this reciprocal relationship between us and our climate, um, we human beings, we're not neutral information receivers, right? How I perceive climate change depends very much on um, who, who I am, my social and cultural background and identity, and if my immediate community expresses concern about climate change, then I might be able to see and perceive climate change. But if my immediate community is not concerned about climate change, it can incur a social cost for me to stand up and say, but wait a second, I, I think climate change is, is real and I'm, I'm really worried about it. And it turns out that at an unconscious level, this filtering we do is, um, it is more, it's risk, we feel at higher risk unconsciously to alienate the people who are important to us than to do something about, again, this problem that feels a little bit distant and removed. Um, and one interesting thing in the research that I do, it doesn't matter, every other variable is drowned out by one single variable in, in the studies that we do right, right now in the United States, and that is political identity. So no matter what we present people with about climate change, if their political identity leans more conservative, they are much less likely to express concern about the climate change scenario. Whereas if they are liberal leaning, they're much more likely. And at both ends of this political identity spectrum, there is um, some motivated cognition going on, right? The people who are leaning liberal are making it more extreme than what we present. And the people who are leaning conservative are making it less extreme than what we present. Um, so uh, the third point I want to make is that this, there's a little bit of, of privilege involved in this as well, that um, if you 
some of us can afford to ignore climate change more, more than others. People who are living on the front lines uh, in coastal communities, for example, and often it is people in the poorer communi communities who are really experiencing climate change, that, climate change impacts that are unequivocally related to climate change. Um, they, it is both occurring in the United States in poor communities, but also globally around the world, a country like Bangladesh that is seeing the impacts right now, a poor country, and people in these communities cannot ignore, cannot pretend that it is not climate change. And ironically, tragically, uh, they are often among the people who've done the least to contribute to global emissions, carbon emissions, and yet they are the ones who are experiencing the impacts first and, and worst. Um, but the impacts of climate change are getting harder and harder to ignore. Um, it, every year, every month, we're seeing more extremes in the weather and communities are dealing with unprecedented weather events. And these are having a significant impact on people's mental health and well-being. So especially in the communities where, um, well, Hurricane Harvey, for example, in California, the wildfires, um, this is creating essentially a mental health crisis in those, in those communities. Um, people are having their lives cut out from under them, and it's even worse if they're in a place, and this is happening more often now too, where a hundred-year storm or a thousand-year storm occurs, two of them occur within the space of a mere five years, so people are hit by one unprecedented calamity, have no time to recover, and there another one comes. So people are losing the sort of connections, the moorings of their lives. Um, and this is creating um, ripple effects, after effects, like substance abuse, depression, um, PTSD that, that we're seeing in these communities. Um, in places like Australia, drought is leading to an epidemic of farmers committing suicide, um, we are seeing these impacts more and more often. And one last thing that I'll, I'll say is that uh, even among, even in communities where we're not seeing these, imp these horrific impacts, and even in communities where there is um, a large amount of skepticism about climate change, we are still seeing a an increase in this sort of low level, what some people are calling eco-anxiety, and the sense of the world is changing, I can't do anything about it, I feel sadness, I feel anxious, I feel doom. And that is increasing pretty much everywhere. So I'll, I will end on that sad note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Christy. Um, the questions will be at the end, so we'll have all three presenters first, so keep, keep in mind what you want to ask. Thank you so much. Umair? Thank you. Um, thank you, Alejandro, for, um, for introducing, and thank you to my 
my uh, colleagues uh, for being here and welcome to Houston, welcome to Harris County, welcome to Texas. Um, and thank you so much for leaving this on such a fantastically positive note at the very end there, so I appreciate it. I, 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 was, I was falling all along and then when you, when you ended with that, I said, oh geez, let me, let me now change everything that I was about to say with that. Um, so it's a pleasure to be here uh, this morning and I really just wanna, again, just say uh, what a great opportunity to have a discussion about such an important topic. And uh, from a physical health standpoint, or thinking about health in general, whether you look at mind, body, spirit, um, all of us are interconnected. And I think the, the most in incredible uh, optics of that is the fact that we have spirit right in between mind and body, because at the end of the day, that's the connection. And so our, our friend here is connecting the two of us. Um, I wanted to, to say a few things. First of all, I would be remiss if I didn't share this with you. Um, I was... Uh, in anticipation of, of today's conversation, I went and printed something so I would have some background information, right? That's what doctors usually do. And so I printed out my nine-year-old daughter, Safira, wound up finding the document. And so she then proceeded to put post-it notes and explaining to me specifically what she, which sentence she wanted me to use and which paragraph. She said eight minutes is not enough, but if you follow this guide that you will be just fine. And I think she's right. Um, and it really, it, it reminded me of the fact that at the end of the day, here's a nine-year-old who, who gets it, who understands this. And there's so many children and so many of the younger members of our communities who, who, who understand the interconnectedness of health, physical health, with the environment, with, with what's around us, with the world around us. And she was able to really connect. So I think it's about collecting dots. So we've collected dots for so many decades, but really how to connect dots. And so collecting dots and connecting dots, I think that's an important piece to remember. But it's also about her and children like her. It's about the next generation and the generation after that. And so I think the global piece here is that this is really not just about the four of us and those in this audience. It's really about who's coming after us in this world. And what are we leaving behind? And that's an important question for all of us to be mindful of, but also to help contribute to. So as, as Alejandra mentioned, I'm the, the director of our health department. It's an incredible privilege, actually. Today, I, I will, uh, I mark my 15th year, March 1, today. And that's actually why I accepted this, because I wanted to say that from this day. I'm kidding. Uh, 15th year at the health department. and. Really, our department is the county health department that really is mindful of the fact that we are the third largest community in the country. We have close to five million people that would rank us between Kentucky and Oregon, somewhere between number 26 and number 27 by population if we were a state. And also, if you take our geographic size, we're just a bit larger than the state of Rhode Island. And yet, since I've been at our department and even prior, we have had a number of emergencies. If you think back to Tropical Storm Allison, Hurricanes Katrina, Rita, Ike, 
all tropical storms in between, and certainly the 100-year storms of 2016 and uh, 2015 and 16, and then we were hit by Hurricane Harvey. And you can make the case that climate, regardless of, as Christy mentioned it, who believes in what, we know in our community that climate has an impact on health. We know that because we've lived it. And that's absolutely essential to our grounding of why it's important for us to be thinking about climate, but more importantly, to act upon trying to find ways to improve that discussion and that change. The WHO, so I should look at what my daughter had me uh, um, look at here, climate change affects the social and environmental determinants of health. Clean air, safe drinking water, sufficient food, secure shelter. And between 2030 and 2050, climate change is expected to cause approximately 250,000 additional deaths per year from malnutrition, malaria, diarrhea, heat stress, and certainly water and sanitation comes to play. We at the health department um, have an incredible privilege to serve our community. Uh, we were recognized in 2016 as local health department of the year across the health departments across the country, and it was for our work in innovation, engagement, and equity. And that's what this is about. Christy mentioned the communities that oftentimes are left behind. And we have to remember that during Hurricane Harvey, we were all impacted as a community, some more, some less. But at the end of the day, Hurricane Harvey taught us that those who had more resources were able to bounce back quicker, they were able to recover, and those who did not have or did not share in those resources were not able to, and in fact still are in the recovery process. And so there is an incredible connection with equity and how do we look at the entirety of our community and really ensuring that we reach the entirety of our community. Because when we think about climate, we have to remember that it's impacted us locally. But I want to say two other things, which is that climate change is a loaded term. And we at the health department oftentimes don't use those two words together, at least in that order. We say changing climate, we say climate and health, and not because it's not okay or proper to use climate change. And in fact, it is. As you know, 97% of scientists believe that climate change is real, and it's something that we need to remember that we've collected these dots, and we need to certainly connect those dots. But it's because we want to make sure that we have an inclusive discussion with everyone in this community about the impacts of climate on health, because I'm not interested in red and blue and left and right and yes or no. I'm interested in building the bridges for why climate is having an impact on our community and communities like us across the world. So I'm originally from Pakistan. Um, I've got family actually in India as well. And I know there are members of our audience, I can tell, that are also from South Asia. And you know that right now, 
We are on the brink of nuclear war potentially because of two countries that, by the way, are fighting over a disputed area that, while politics aside, is also a water rights issue. Not everybody knows that. It is our responsibility, and I'm not taking sides, as you can imagine, but what I'm saying is that it's our responsibility to know what's happening in the world so we can really also connect those dots. Christy mentioned Bangladesh. You can also mention the Maldives. The Maldive Islands are really every day feeling the impacts of climate. Rising waters, rising tides. It is a challenge for the world. And we would be remiss if we didn't think of our connections to the world around us, as Alejandro mentioned during his very nice meditation. I also want to say that we believe very strongly in public health and population health, that the entirety of the population is what we're interested in. And so I, as a physician, I was, by the way, a philosophy major, so I think that kind of tells you where I sort of went a little bit in this philosophical uh, stint here. Um, recognize that there are social factors that impact physical health. So if you don't believe that housing, transportation, education, economics, jobs, that these things do not impact physical health, you haven't been paying attention. And what's absolutely critical is that as departments like ours build our units and the built environment and climate and resilience and equity and thinking about the physical health, the spiritual health, the mental health, the nutritional health of our communities, that we have to remember that one step at a time is about how do we nurture the generations that are coming after us. And that's our responsibility both here locally as well as globally. And so I yield back and just say that it's important for us to be a part of this discussion because as a physician, I remember every individual patient that I saw in the emergency department of the hospital and the clinic, and I used to think that's where health happened. And then I recognized after 15 years at the health department that health happens in the community where all of us live, where we learn, where we work, where we worship, and where we play. Thank you. Well, good morning. And through all of that, the one voice that has been the smallest yet the loudest now has been the voice of Mother Earth. And those voices of Mother Earth just happen to be indigenous peoples. And these voices now are speaking louder and louder. Through us all, part of that prophecy that I do know is when the people called Americans came here, North and South America, to Turtle Island, which is what you call in the United States or America, is uh, 
Turtle Island to most indigenous folks here. And this prophecy spoke of how we would do all those things that the languages that you're talking about now, um, that keeping you awake, that's waking you up. Imagine native peoples doing this all the time. There was simply not conferences over it. There was no such word as environment. It's just what you did. So in our practices and understanding the prophecies that they put down the prayers as if you would say prayers, that the thoughts, their convictions with the earth, understanding the different plants, the animals, the rocks, the water, the motions of the weather, the cosmos. And all that came within their language. And their languages became quantum physics languages. With no nouns, no concepts, no beginning, no ending, no, no time, no need for an alphabet. That you were just in motion with life as it is, all the time, moving. Your consciousness became so big that, you did, that there was no need for a conscience, no need for a religion, no need for abstractiveness. To say, that's God. But who are we? Who were we to say, that's God? Who were we to say, that's love? Because in my language, those are hot words. They're so sacred that you can't even say them. But we say them as if it was a drive-up mentality. So we go back to the prayers put in deep into the earth, with the earth. And these prayers and thoughts and contemplations have spawned, I guess I would say, the, the code, the DNA of the earth of our peoples in the Western Hemisphere. And the foods that we've given to became our prayers, our people, our ashes, our DNA of the native people here. And those foods have gone all over the world now. 80% of the world's foods, the varieties come from the Western Hemisphere. And all the world is eating our ancestors. And that consciousness now is much needed to be the number one message, tokahe, is the first thing that you think of is Mother Earth, like I said this morning. Because everything else came later. Now, if we are going to be speaking the same language, <laughs> how do I say this? Um, you cannot awaken someone who's, who's uh, pretending to be awake. You're using the same language, and it all sounds good about earth and environment, but you think about the native people who have been living this all along here, through thick and thin, through whatever administrator, administrator of this country called the United States is, that we've been between the left and the right and the blue and the green and yellow and all of that. We're still here the sustainability, the, the ability to have community, but with the earth. So when I speak to young people all over the world, the environmentalists, I've been through COP 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, and they're still speaking the same words at the United Nations. And it's dividing up the garbage. And so the legalities of how we look at dividing the earth up 
it fits in the box, the logical box of the Western Hemisphere. Now you can think about Wakan to consciously apply mystery to everything. Why there is a need for the Western mindset to do what it needs to do because it's a predatory thought process. And nature selects the evolvement. And if this predatory thought process of the West is to overeat, overconsume, over exploit, Mother Earth is going to take you out. Because it's not conducive to living with the Earth. And I go back to an earlier conversation this morning. I understand English has this centering called I. I is a noun, I is a pronoun. It's a subject, object, objectifies people, thingifies everything. But in my language, there's no word for I, me, my, or mine, or even ours. We can never say our Mother Earth, because that's not responsibility. So, what do we do when we refer to self? We can say, I, but in the sense of referencing your relationship, that I becomes a verb. You are a verb. And if your language is one of motion and quantum physics, then you continue to understand more than just the centering of how this society centers that we created the problem, but maybe it's an evolvement of what she needs you to do now. And one of those peoples that I've heard in Marrakesh a few years ago was very important, is no longer um, part of the government, is that he said, we've been taught to do our very best all the time. Do your best. And so we do our best. But he said, that's not even work, that's not working anymore. You can polish it up and say, hey, we did our best. But the thing that got me, he said, we can do our best, but now we have to do what's required. And that's the earth. We take the pareidolia of trying to see Elvis Presley in a pancake or in a tree, or the human value that we often see the earth as a material gain. If it doesn't have that value, then it's not worth it to us. And so we become non-empathetic with those peoples who are speaking the languages of earth. And those are the languages that are dying 7,000 languages in the world spoken. The majority of these languages are indigenous languages that have this at the base, at the center of it all, is that we do not have a word or a concept for domination. Because when you speak a relational language, you have to relate to all life, all things that you say dead, which are not dead to us. Because this cup, this glass, is caring for me, is caring for all of us, is caring water, very important consciousness. So when you apply consciousness to everything, it becomes mystery. So then you take it as an aspect of looking at your body and mind, 
are in the soul. Everything here, you all are my soul. And how am I treating that soul? Now let's include the elements, the water, the fire, the rock, the air, the trees, the animals. And I tell this to the folks, especially the young environmentalists, because they've worked with the system of the Western Hemisphere and others that say there's an environment, and here's the rules and regulations of this environment. And they cannot go any further than what they're told to do. But they feel inherently there's something terribly wrong, but they have not the language to go past it. So they're frustrated. And so when I, when I explain the elemental consciousness that we've known in our languages, like the original vocabulary of Lakota was only 3,000 words because we honed it down to very few words. Because we know when we're silent here that we can hear the other dimensions. But this country is talking so much, it's forgot how to listen. So when I come to the environmental consciousness, to these young folks, I say, you cannot live in, can you live in stone? Can you live in water? Can you live in a tree? Can you live in an animal? Can you live in fire? And obviously we can't. Now take the science of that, take the quantum physicness of, of that simple thought. Is because all of those elements that I named live within you. And those are intelligent elements. But look how we are treating them. We are extracting Houston, we're extracting. Texas, an extraction state. Everything is about going out there to bring it back to the box so that we can survive with our privileges. And we don't want to look at that anymore. Because we're, we're in this idea of what God is. So we continue to stay within the parameters of guilt and sin and blame and even hope. Because we want to be benevolent and save the earth but we forget that she's already in the process of saving us. Thank you. Let's finish over there with that. And let me first thank all three presenters. As we get into some of the questions first amongst us and then bring it to you. So one of the things that actually our keynote last night was talking about how resources do make a difference. And um, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember who, I think it was one of you, Umair, who was talking about how we know when there are resources, communities recover faster. Now, I think we, we know some of the resources that are needed in terms of body. What are the resources in terms of mind and in terms of spirit that we need and we're not seeing. And you can be part of the conversation as well, of course. So, but let's start with Christy. So, the, one of the biggest resources is community. It is social connectedness. The research shows that the more 
connections there are in a community among residents, the quicker they are to recover. And that it's both because they, with more connections, they're looking out for each other physically, but it's also because the more connected you are, the more emotional support you have. And the more connected you are, the more likely you are to feel useful to somebody else. And that is perhaps even the biggest boost that you get through tight-knit communities, is that you see that, yes, you may be s struggling and suffering, but you are able to lift someone else up with your efforts, and that has a huge impact. Great. Thank you. I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it's clear uh, from what we hear that uh, if we have more resources, then the, we can recuperate faster. Now, many times we think of resources mostly as physical or body resources. What about mind resources? What about spirit resources that we don't have, that we don't even notice that we don't have? And what do we need? Because English is my second language. I have to remove myself from here and go mental. So when I think about even the, the etymology of the word research, mm. is as if you were lost in the first place. And so we're always going to something to be something. When in my original context of the language of Lakota, we have no word to be. Just that you are. But the way I have to explain it sounds a little distance is that if you're coming from this, this place, you don't have to go research because you're in the knowledge of it. And so when I went out to get my degrees, I, made, I was made sure that I was told to not educate the wisdom out of myself, hmm. that yeah. to always retain the energy of the earth and the abstractiveness that we've been downloading for since 500 years now is now changing that now we're looking at the uploading of Mother Earth through the DNA and I described the elemental consciousnesses is I think that's part of knowing um, and understanding that maybe we don't have to go so far to research because what, what, what good is that research doing us? I, I'm sure the vernacular of that is, is much more than is needed. Let me say something because I think it's, I'm, English is also my second language yeah. and maybe that's why I meant resource. So resources that we mm. need in terms of spiritual resources. Okay. So again, <laughs> if we make everything into a resource, then what happens to the source? You see, there's just only one source. Again, we're dividing it up by re, like even respect, right? All that, all that means is to look again. Are we respecting the earth? And so the source is, no, we make it into a resource because we think it's always going to be there. And that's mm. the growth of America. Ame, the love of, rica, feminine form for riches. So when you become an American, The love of riches, <laughs> the love of privilege. So, thank you. 
Omar? So, again, as, as my, my fellow panelists, they always leave it on a, on a note that it's hard to, 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 uh, to leverage or expand upon. So I just have to start over and, and, and go from there. So uh, thank you for that. Um, you know, we believe very strongly in not the individual alone, but the individual as part of a context, a community, a, a world, a, a nature, a spirit. And we believe very strongly that you have to be thinking about all of these elements together. And very quickly in medicine, unfortunately, the way Western medicine has become over the years um, is that we try to separate it. Mm -hmm. So a patient comes with high blood pressure and we say, oh, it's because you have high blood pressure, something physical, and we forget the mind and the, and the spirit. But we also forget the environment. And I mean the, the global environment, the community around. And so we really need to be thinking about that term, which I, has gotten a little bit of a buzz to it, resiliency. Mm -hmm. And if it's not used appropriately, it can be a buzzword, but if it's used appropriately, it really brings all of this in, is how do we ensure that our communities and our peoples are resilient? And that really implies so much of internal individual, mind, body, spirit, but it also in, involves really ensuring that we're thinking about the appropriate ways that we build communities and think about the ways those communities interact with each other, the broad ways of thinking about social connectedness and really thinking about how we fit in with Mother Nature. But we don't do that a lot because we're so much thinking about that individual in a very Western, siloed, way. Um, and so my tradition, I just wanted to share this, I was thinking about traditions as you were speaking, was that we use the word, we have a word called kal in our language. And kal means, it, it means yesterday. But kal also means tomorrow. And so for us, this time, when you, it's, it's a little confusing when you say I'm going to meet, you know, we're going to do this or something, people are like, well, you, did it already happen? Or is it happening? Yeah. And why I say that is that it's really important to remember the continuum of time is really what we have done impacts what is going to happen. And what is going to happen impacts what we are doing today. And we have to remember that connectedness of continuum of time as well. And so I just wanted to bring that back as well in my tradition and how that comes back to the to the spirit. Thank you. And I actually appreciate um, when you talk about these aspects of these loaded words, mm -hmm. whether it is actually climate change, whether it's resiliency, because yes, sometimes already when we're using them, particularly the people that we talk to, they already have something in their brain that responds immediately without really taking it in. Mm -hmm. In terms of community, which seems to be something that we're all focusing on, um, and um, you were talking about medicine and traditional medicine. So, and when I talk traditional, you know, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of time people in the West, we think that we talk about traditional medicine as if it was Western medicine, but actually Western medicine is only a couple of hundred years old, right? Um, and so the traditional medicines are much um, 
much uh, older and um, they have a different wisdom to bring. Uh, so recently I was uh, uh, invited by the PAHO, which is the Pan-American Health Organization in Nicaragua. We had uh, not just integrative medicine, but traditional medicines. Um, and again, this topic of community came as aspects of health. So when something happens to someone, the whole community comes together. Maybe there's someone who's a particular healer, but it's not just that person. It is about the community. In my own personal um, uh, practice community, the Burn Tibetan tradition, which is an indigenous tradition too, when there's someone who's not well, actually he or she is at the center and we're all around. And when we do the practices, it's towards that. So there's something about community that I think we have to relearn. Um, that we talk, even the word community, we use very lightly. And I think if we really understand the power of community, I think it's important. The other aspect is this aspect that it's all already there. We don't have to redo it, to resource. I think this is important to know that. And part of what, you know, a lot of times it seems that we are looking for things outside instead of looking at what we already have, what the Mother Earth is already bringing us. When we're touching the floor, when we're touching the Earth, we are connected. Maybe breath helps and other things, but it's we are connected. So how can we maintain that connectedness to the Earth and support with the community? And talking about community, maybe it's a good time uh, to hear from our community here today. We have a couple of mics around so that we can hear your question and it can be recorded. So uh, if you can um, lift your hand and we'll direct the mic to you. I love this panel, it's awesome. Uh, just a, a question, a, a lot of connection is to nature. And we, in our talking about this, we forget to mention that that's one of the quickest ways that most of us can reconnect, to use the re, the re version of it. But um, as we try and create resiliency, we forget, it feels like there's a silent spring going around, along again, where, where I travel to Spain and here, sometimes New Hampshire. So uh, could you speak to nature? and how we stay connected and create resiliency there and reconnect the whole. Thank you. I guess from, you know, maybe I'll do a quick body piece and then I'll let uh, mind and spirit uh, to, to follow is that, you know, nature, um, um, there is, and, I, and I, again, I, I defer to folks here we'll talk about um, nature in that sense of nature is already there and you know mother nature as, as you described is is, is really all you know it's it's mar markedly larger than what we bring to the table but we do have impact on climate and there is that bonafide impact that has having challenge and and change and impact on our own bodies and so when we think about um, the, the fact that it's getting warmer. And that's changing the, the environment such that now you have mosquitoes that are in different parts of the country, the world, if you will, that weren't there before. 
And we then as a health department are spraying or doing what we need to do to figure out how we're going to protect our, 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 our community from West Nile virus, for example. Um, but thinking about that from the standpoint of natural disasters, thinking about that from heat-related emergencies, thinking about that from the standpoint of food and sanitation and those, those social factors that really come into play. I think you hit on the right point, which is all of that is interconnected and that all, we have a role to play, but what happens collectively is also impacting us individually. And so while individually we have a role to play and collectively we have a role to play that actually feeds into that change, that change is also impacting us collectively and individually. And that interconnectedness, however you look at it, and also domestically, globally, and back, that all is really very important from the body standpoint. Because as resilient and strong as we are, but also our pathways are to help the communities around us, and also the environment and what else is out there, we also have to remember that it also impacts us. So that relationship is absolutely critical. Um. Well, um, I'll go with what you said too, the relationship and it's, it's to, to me it's not how we do something because to me you were talking about privilege earlier, that's a privilege that we, it's sort of a drive up mentality, give it to me now so I, so I can be instructed how to attain a sound body, mind and spirit is it takes time, you have to be involved with nature so that even the word nature disappears. We, many native languages don't even have the word for nature. We don't have the word for free because that's what you are. So this is why earlier I was referencing that we don't, any of the Romance languages or Indo-European languages cannot contain our thought process and that's why we only have 3,000 words in Lakota when the, the Catholic priest came along in 1926 to the Lakota reservation, he delineated it into 178,000 more words so that English could understand the 3,000 words that we were speaking. <laughs> you see, so when we think about how this energy is, is all of us here is exchange, the nature of that energy is to not see it one way, but to see all the varieties. And for instance, there's not just four directions for us, our seven cardinal points, that's nice, there's re really 260 directions. There's 260 sounds, there's 260 mm, colors. So think about a language that understands all of those relationships, not just the binary right and wrong or the three-dimensional. You have to understand that these, it takes time to understand your relationships, so therefore your, your dimensional thought process goes beyond I and gives it, goes into the cosmos of what you see out in the sky, the consciousness of that. Um, I think that what, if we want to know how, is when I speak English, I'm always talking about wanting and needing. And, and I really have understood that it is a language of neglect, neglecting the earth. But see, now we're into that understanding it, that there's something needs to be done, so we're starting to speak the correct language. But now we have to do something with the corrections that we are speaking of, right? Um, 
I mean, I, I tried to be this. I was a computer programmer for so many years with the state legislature back out in the West Coast, but it didn't work for me because I was isolated. I, I ended up hitting golf balls off into to the Puget Sound. And I thought, this is all it is? This is it? This is all? These pieces of paper that says I know something, yet I can't apply it to what I'm breathing in? So I, I took it and soaked it up like a sponge. Everything that I do became medicine to me. This is what my, my great-grandparents taught, is the relationship between them, the male and, and the female, is when they spoke the language of relationship, they were healing each other because they were speaking the language of medicine. Now think about if we spoke only medicine, everything would speak to us, the good and the bad so-called, and everything would speak to us. And so maybe how-to is learning or relearning a language of medicine and taking the thingifying, the objectifying, the, the uh, objectifying, the, the subjecting of all things that are material, taking the nouns out of it and putting life back into it. And I have a friend, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who, who wrote uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. Now, we're attempting, she's coming from the other, the Western way, and, and infusing life back into the scientific words. And she's asking a lot of native people, like myself. And so we're coming from that infusion of life that has to be redefined so we in the Western world can understand the concepts of how to control even more. So I think relationship is that way. And just, just to finish with that, um, Albert Einstein came to the Western Hemisphere in 1930. Um, he went to the Hopi. He also was rumored to go to my people, the Lakota. And after being there for whatever time he spent there, he understood that at that time, these cultures were so remote. And I'll say that the Lakota culture, we were first contacted in physically in 19, or 1841. That's not too long ago. And so my great-great-grandfather understood those times, and that's the language that is still instilled with me, rather than the new Lakota, which has objects and thingifies everything. So Albert Einstein understood that these remote cultures of these children never saw a book in their lives, ever. And so he talked to them and understood that. And you can see it in his journals. He said that the 12-year-old children of the Hopi, and he had been all over the world, the 12-year-old children of the Hopi were the most prepared to understand the theory of relativity. Hmm. Because they were living it. They were living reality, not using the reality. You see? And I could go on and on. I have so many stories, but I'll stop. We have two minutes, so yeah. I don't know if you have something else. Great. I just this, this week read Robin Walkimmer's book with my, one of my classes. It's a, and uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, highly, highly recommended. Um, and uh, so I'll, I'll just speak to the, to the, the need, the psychological need we all have for a connection to, to nature, which can't really, it's, it's, it's hard now to use the word because of course nature can't be contained in, in that word. But just like we need relationships to other people for 
robust mental health for um, successful child development. We do much better if we understand ourselves in relationship to the natural world. There is abundant data that shows this. It shows both the lifelong effects of it, but it also shows that even if you can just go for a walk for five minutes, you do better mentally, emotionally, physically if you do that walk in a, a natural setting versus an urban setting. So there are many, many, many studies that show that those effects. Thank you. Yeah, in fact, they call that uh, forest bathing. Yes. Um, so yes. you can use that. So I thought that instead of closing words, we should have a closing silence. Since I, I really agree that it's in silence that we can listen. So let's take just a moment of silence and listen to yourself, to the earth, to what you just listened, and let's reflect just for a moment. Please help me thank our wonderful panel. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. I'd like to say thank you too to each of you all for being here today and for sharing with us. Thanks so much. Okay, everyone, so just a couple quick announcements. We have a short break. We're gonna make our way over to the University of St. Thomas now. Um, lunch will be served at 12 o'clock and the next session will begin promptly at 12.30. Um, I also want to bring your attention to, again, your, your trusty guide where there's a map. So it will tell you exactly where you need to go next. We also have a student from the University of St. Thomas who is out front with the University of St. Thomas t-shirt, uh, and she is on site to guide you over as well. Also, I wanna bring to your attention one of our presenters this weekend, artist Eve Mosher, who's in from New York City, brought her children with her. And since December, they have been going every Friday to City Hall for a climate strike. And so they are continuing their strike outside on the plaza, so you'll see them. They're out there with their signs and they're there to engage with you. Um, so we will see you next door very soon. Thank you all, and thank you all again. <laughs>